0: Hello, and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. Who can you find on Iron Brew Bottles, memorialised in over 60 statues around the world from Dumfries to Dunedin, and sung and spoken the world o'er? Robert Burns, of course, and on this episode, to mark his birthday, we're joined by two special guests well acquainted with his life and work. Professor Jerry Carruthers is Francis Hutchison Chair of Scottish Literature at the University of Glasgow, where he's leading on a major project, editing Robert Burns for the 21st century. He's General Editor of the New Oxford Collected Works of Robert Burns, Co-Director of the Centre for Robert Burns Studies, and also Secretary of the Robert Burns Elliesland Trust. In our conversation with Jerry, he tells us more about Burns and Dumfries, but I started off by asking him how we can gear on to the Ellisland Trust Old Lang Syne campaign to safeguard and celebrate Ellies Land and its treasures for now and for the future. What is the campaign and more pressingly, what is Ellisland Farm?
1: Well, Ellisland Farm, of course, was the first marital home of Robert Burns. It's a place where he wrote perhaps 130 songs some of his best poems, um, such as *Tama Shanter. And uh, the farm and museum and the site in general has been held in trust for 100 years. We're approaching the centenary. A new trust has recently taken over. And the, lots of good things have been done there in the past, but we feel it's now time to step up and to develop it as the world-class heritage site that it should be, including as a centre, if you like, for European song, because Burns is a cornerstone of European romantic song, and also develop the site as one of the most beautiful places in Scotland. So these two things, at least, coming together, song and environment, which um, are tangible today and which are very much part of the legacy that comes from Robert Burns himself.
0: Can you paint a picture for us of the farm, Jerry? Just it's like, because it's it's right on the River Nith and everything, really beautiful. Can you give us a sort of sense of it?
1: Uh, there are a lot of acres. The farm itself, the farmhouse, which to a large extent Burns had built when he arrived there 1788. It has the, the stunning Nith going past the farmhouse, fields and hills, and indeed mountains in the background. Robert Burns fell in love with the place when perhaps he might have been wiser to go for a more productive or an easier farm. But it's got everything, it's got water, it's got woods, there's an orchard there, all the kind of things that are designed to fire a poet and songwriter's imagination. And it's one of the most special places on the planet, I think, Peggy, when people step into it, they just realise that the wow factor that the place has, the place where, as well as Tam O'Shanter, we had old Lang Syne composed.
0: I mean, it sounds absolutely gorgeous. I wonder. You, and you mentioned he, you know, he, that he wrote a huge number of his of his songs there. Can you say? You tell us a wee bit more about why you think that was the case, Jerry? Just what was it about? You've mentioned it's beautiful and romantic, but what was going on with Burns's life that he was composing those pieces there? Do you think?
1: Well, he arrives there as a young man, full of love and full of lust for his first wife, Jean Armour, or his only <laughs> wife, Jean Armour, who's about to join him, and this inspires in him. A whole load of love songs, the likes of My Love, She's But a Lassie Yet, I Walkin' O. And as time proceeds, he spends more or less three years there before giving up the farm. He notices, obviously enough, the seasons changing, the sights, the smells, the river, the wildlife. He writes his poem on a wounded tear there. And the other curious thing that happens, I think, Peggy, is that he goes into overdrive in his production of Jacobite Songs, and also songs about the Highlands, such as, obviously enough, My Heart's in the Highland. So the landscape is inspiring him not only to be in love with Dumfrieshire, but it's so gorgeous that it makes him think of wider landscapes throughout Scotland. I mean, I think
0: some people, you know, would really associate Burns with Ayrshire and with the cottage and, and all, all of that stuff Alloway but I mean, how, how much would you say of Dumfries then snuck into the work?
1: Well, Ayrshire is obviously important but Dumfriesshire marks the point when Burns is living in Ellisland and then later on in Dumfries and the town itself when he's at the peak of his creative maturity. He is absolutely in love with song. As I've mentioned, he's going around collecting songs on the site as he is an exciseman on his excise beat. And so he is very receptive to songs by people this is the 1790s after the French Revolution it's an age of huge political tumult and he's hanging out with Jacobites in Dumfrieshire this is the point where his poetic palette is all over the place but very productively and very creatively and in terms of Dumfrieshire it's not only the environment of the country it's the lively metropolis the borough of Dumfries itself where he writes political broadsides gets involved in elections where he's a friend of Provost Steg where he joins the Dumfries volunteers and becomes a part-time soldier in effect because people are scared that the French are going to invade. This is a time when Burns' is farmer, soldier, exciseman, one of the greatest songwriters that Europe has ever produced and the time also when he produces that masterpiece, Tam O'Shanter, because people are visiting him at Ellie's Land or visiting his friends Captain Riddle along the road at Friar's Cars, and that includes the antiquarian Francis Gross, for whom he writes Shanter. So, this is a period of huge sociability for Burns. This is a place he doesn't know. He's gone to Dumfrieshire because he's less notorious than he is in Ayrshire. It's a fresh start. It's a place where he's he, he's got a clean copybook for the excise service, and he loves riding around. He loves the society of the town. He also loves the theatre. He hangs out with and chats up actresses. He writes prologues for them. This is the time when he is in cultural orbit around Dumfrieshire and all kinds of things are influencing him, including sometimes also Dumfrieshire Scots, just as earlier on he'd been influenced by Ayrshire Scots, Burns, the man who's open to Dumfrieshire, and it gives him an awful lot of things.
0: I love that idea of him as just the man about town. I wonder if you could say a bit more, Jerry, about how, you know, obviously just the enduring appeal of Burns and how these poems and songs have absolutely stood the test of time, but how did they land in his time?
1: Tam for example. Well, Tam is written as a kind of joke because it celebrates Alloway Kirk and it goes into this book compiled by Francis Gross that has palaces and cathedrals and all kinds of great monuments in Scottish history. An Alleyway Kirk actually is a damp squib. It's the place where Burns' father is buried. The old Kirk is a ruin. It is, frankly, insignificant. But Burns constructs this story of ghosts and witches around it because he wants to smuggle it in to Gross's book. And Gross says, yes, OK, I'll do a print of Alleyway Kirk if you give me a poem. Tam Shanter is a footnote to that insignificant place, Alaway Kirk. It's a big joke with his drinking Buddy Gross. And of course it goes on to become one of his most celebrated poems. Because although it's about Ayrshire, again I think it comes back to that thing that he's imbibing the Dumfrieshire environment and the river Nith, the setting of Ellie's land. So in a way there's something accidental that becomes big. We all think, oh Alaway Kirk, important place. Tam a big poem but, but the supernatural, which it is. A lot of things that Burns does are propelled accidentally to become world famous, such as, for instance, Old Lang Syne, which he writes there, which really becomes famous in the age of radio. But the other thing I think that's going on is he is simply a great songwriter, and the stuff that he's writing at Land ends up being set by Haydn, Liszt, Beethoven. Harville Park, the list goes on, and when you look at it closely, it's only in the last two years, this has dawned on me, Peggy, that what Burns is producing at Ellie's Land is a strand of European romantic music that Scotland, and certainly Dumfrieshire, doesn't quite realise that it has, and it's time for us to wake up to that legacy. And that great creative pot.
0: When you go through that roster of people, I mean, no slouches in there, eh? Arvo Pertinel. No. See, all things. It feels as well that that the campaign's kind of hanging around the name of that song because it's so internationally renowned, isn't it, Jerry? And so it feels even more sort of timely, prescient now when we're also
1: far away from each other. And- that, that's right. You're, you're absolutely right, Peggy. It's a great song for, sadly, the year of COVID, where we should remember one another, where we should remember community, where we should remember people who are apart. And part of the raison d'etre behind Old Lang Syne, although Burns in Ellie's land in Dumfrieshire, was very far from being a million miles away from Ayrshire, much as he embraced the Dumfrieshire thing, there's a certain part of him that does look back to his life in Ayrshire and friends, some of whom he won't see again. You know, old Lang Syne is about people who've parted and gone hundreds and hundreds of miles away from one another across the sea. But also sometimes what we're talking about is people who are just a few counties away and might not see one another again in the 18th century. And that's certainly the case with Burns. He's looking back to Ayrshire. He's looking back in his life. It's a wee bit like John Lennon's in my life and it's a slightly cheesy comparison but I've always got to draw that comparison between Burns frankly and Lennon and McCartney because Burns might or might not have been Scotland's greatest poet but I would argue he's certainly been Scotland's greatest songwriter and in popular parlance up there with a Len McCartney or a Bob Dylan just as he speaks to that great roster of classical composers that we've mentioned already. Part of the greatness of Burns is that he is set and interpreted both by traditional artists and even pop artists and also by the, the great classical composers. It's quite astonishing to have that impact. It comes throughout his career, but if we look at the Ellisland part, the Confisher part, where he's collecting songs for James John Scott's Musical Museum, Johnson back in Edinburgh is publishing these and Burns is giving him more and more and more material, both material written by himself, also material that he's collecting. This is just an almost manic song project it's one of the most brilliant acts, if we join it all together, of romantic Scotland.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting, just bringing uh, Lennon and McCartney and it's something that his songs do endure and speak to such a wide range of people, can be mistaken for sentimentality or a simplicity. But actually, it's sort of underpinned by an amazing sort of technical panache that I think, you know, when someone like Paxman says, oh, it's sentimental, doggerel" or whatever, you know, that's to misunderstand the huge sort of technical work going on underneath.
1: Uh, I think that's absolutely right, Peggy. And if you think about a song like John Anderson, My Joe, also from the early's land period, if you think about a song, another great love song, like Of All The Erts, we're talking about songs that are lyrically very competent, but they don't try to be poetry. Burns can do poetry, but he knows that songs are something else. And he's brilliant at cherry picking lines that pinpoint emotion And then, for instance, in something like Of All The airs, he sets this to a Strathspey. Time and again, he will write love songs for a Strathspey. In other words, these are reels. They're joyous in terms of music and dance, but Strathspeys are slightly slower. And what he's brilliant at doing is picking that reelsome tune, but in slightly slower idiom that accents the emotion. The artistry in Burns' songs we tend to overlook, partly because they're so familiar and partly because we still perhaps haven't studied these um, technically as much as we should. That is now changing a bit. You know, we've had Murray Pittock's edition of the Scots Musical Museum for the Oxford edition of Burns in 2018. Christine McHugh's songs for George Thompson, the other great editor with whom Burns worked, uh, will be out next month. And we're beginning to get a sense of the musicological plenitude of these songs both in terms of the lyrical brilliance often some quite simplistic and inverted commas will that be but also the brilliant curation of music that is Burns choosing historic tunes to go with these lyrics and then these become as I say almost part of the wallpaper Scottish culture simply because he's so good at it
0: what was he like as a singer if he was a singer?
1: Um, There are different versions of this, Peggy, and there's a wee bit of wishful thinking. Uh, The idea that Burns was either a very good fiddler and or a very good singer. In fact, he probably had a rather rudimentary ability on fiddle. He owned a fiddle, he also owned a guitar. In terms of his singing, his tutor early on, John Murdoch, when he was a boy, more or less said, Burns couldn't hold a tune. Oh. And although <laughs> he was a great raconteur in the drawing rooms of Edinburgh, my suspicion is that he couldn't hold a note.
0: <laughs> I just love that phrase. He couldn't hold the tune, anyway. In my part of the world, they say you couldn't hold the tune if it was in a plastic bag,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. which is odd dear.
1: But he could hear it. He could hear songs, and you know, we we know this. This can be the case with brilliant producers, brilliant songwriters who don't have necessarily have much expressive musical ability themselves, but they have imaginative vision. And that's what, what Burns had. You know, in that in that uh, Land period, as I've mentioned, we've got his senses being assailed by sights and sounds and all kinds of things. But also, it's the local culture. He's hearing folk songs. He's hearing Jacobite songs. He's drinking it all in and he's reinterpreting and reshaping a lot of that material.
0: Can I ask you a bit, Jerry, about your own relationship to the music then? I guess, what would be your favourite?
1: Well, I suppose, again, another Land song that I've got particular affinity with, particular uh, liking for, is Burns's Mary Queen of Scots, Her Lament Written in Spring, which is Burns basically had broken his leg and he feels a bit sorry for himself. And that imagination goes into imagining Mary Queen of Scots imprisoned in England and he imagines her like an imprisoned bird and he writes about the green spaces outside that she's looking at. And it's just, it's a gorgeous piece of historical imagination, even though in some ways he's writing about himself. And then that is brilliantly set to music earlier this century by Scotland's greatest composer, James Macmillan. And it was performed by the Star trio in 2009 in both Edinburgh and Glasgow. My favourite poem probably be, would be A Poet's Welcome to His Love Begotten Daughter. And this is where Burns is celebrating the birth of his first illegitimate child, his dear bought Beth. The mother was the servant girl, Elizabeth Payton. And Burns says in that poem with great emotion, I don't care if church and local magistrates and so on want to make me feel ashamed for the fact that she is born out of wedlock. I love her and I loved her mother and I will not blush when that child calls me daddy. That is a set of emotions in that poem that just, I think, blows you away. And, you know, Burns was well aware of his own failings, his own faults. We wouldn't necessarily defend them. But Robert Burns in that poem, the sheer love for his child and for the child's mother and the sheer lack of embarrassment that he's going to show in the world are just frankly magnificent.
0: Thanks so much to Jerry for chatting to us. We at Wigtown are excited to be supporting Ellie's Land as part of our Spotlit Literary Tourism Project, which we've featured on previous episodes of this very podcast. Ellie's Land are working with Dumfries Museums at Robert Burns' House, the Globe Inn, which is Burns' favourite house, and the Robert Burns Centre, to develop the story of Burns in Dumfries. You can also find out how to support the Ellie's Land campaign by visiting their website. That's ellieslandfarm.co.uk Gerda Stevenson is an award winning writer, actor, director, and singer songwriter who's worked in theatre, television, radio, film, and opera throughout Britain and abroad. Her poetry, drama, and prose have been widely published, staged, and broadcast. Here we talk about her second poetry collection, Quine's Poems in Tribute to Women of Scotland, which charts the contribution made to Scottish history and society by remarkable women from Neolithic times to the 21st century. It stars singers, politicians, fish cutters, queens, dancers, marine engineers and many more. Also, as one of the foremost performers of Burns, we discuss her relationship to his work, some favourites, and a few top performance tips for the brave souls gearing up for Burns Night 2021 style. Gerda, you grew up in a house full of poetry and music. I wonder if you could take us back to your first encounter with the work of Robert Burns.
2: Well, I feel as though I've always known Burns. (laughs) I can't remember when I didn't. At primary school, I remember we learned poems to a mouse and things like that so I've yes I've, I've always you know he's always been there somehow
0: <laughs> He's I think that's the case for a lot of people growing up in Scotland you know he's sort of just such a presence that he that exactly that he's never not there I mean and were you were you as a, as a small person were you like me and I'm not saying I'm a singer by the way I'm not but always sort of called upon for the party pieces and things would that have been you by any chance
2: um, not particularly although we we're all musicians in our all musicians in our family I used to sing um and it was it was never a kind of possibly because my father was a professional musician. I don't think we were called upon to do party pieces as such. But I used to sing a lot. I used to love listening to Joan Baez as a teenager, and <laughs> singing is is as again it's something I've always done and I can't remember not doing it. My father set a lot of Scottish poetry to music, creating songs. So I grew up with song being a big part of my childhood and and upbringing.
0: I wonder if I could ask you then a wee bit more. We On, on this podcast too, we, we speak to Jerry Carruthers, who's um an academic and he he speaks about Burns as being one of the greatest songwriters. And I think a lot of people, you know, he's a poet first for people. And I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on that, on him as a, as a poet versus being a songwriter, if, if they're indeed separable.
2: I think that's really interesting uh, because I write songs and I write poetry and I think the two things are different. That's not to say that a song can't be a poem and a poem can't be a song, but I think they are slightly different. I have always sung Burns songs and I absolutely love singing them. And in fact, when it comes to performance, I have sung much more Burns than I've read You know, I've done The Immortal Memory and I've read Byrne's poems, but I always incorporate song. And one of the reasons I love his songs is the music. It's not just the words. The words are fabulous. And of course, he has this brilliant way of matching the melody to the words. He was musically literate and he knew a good tune. They were often fiddle tunes, so they're sometimes quite taxing to sing because you're dealing with big octave leaps because that's the way fiddle tunes are written and he would often choose fiddle tunes so when you're singing something like Jamie come try me you know it's it's huge octave leaps Jamie come try me Jamie come try me La 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 Do you see what I mean? Huge sort of high and low and I actually enjoy that scaling the heights of Burns' tune
0: <laughs> Wonderful, Gerd. I mean, technically that sounds like it's not for the faint of heart though, and yet his music is so sung and beloved by so many people who don't have a voice like your beautiful voice. So what what tips would you give to people for sort of technically performing his work?
2: Well, they're not easy. I mean, breathing is a thing <laughs> because you've got long arcs of lines and so you need to know where to take your breaths Of course, there is a kind of Sprechgesang style of singing, which is the speak singing. And, you know, people do that too. That's that's kind of Dick Gochen's style of singing, for example, which is fabulous. I I think it depends on your style. Burns can be sung in many, many different ways. I've done a lot of unaccompanied singing and I like that. I like the freedom of, of that.
0: I wonder, moving sort of towards your own work, I mean, would you say he's had any influence on you as a poet, as a songwriter?
2: Possibly, Yes. There's one song uh, of mine that I wrote it's called it's our it's over and and people have said oh that's like a that's that's kind of got a real traditional kind of feeling of a, a burn song almost to it and it's probably slightly influenced by that um, but uh, I mean I, I write songs in a, a wide range of styles kind of from sort of cold Porter style to to Scottish folk so I think it depends but yes he's definitely in there as an as an influence no doubt about it and his Scots his glorious use of the Scots language also What I love about Burns as well is the way he has, he so confidently flits between English and Scots and sometimes within the same poem.
0: I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your poem, Fremit. It kind of came from uh, some of the themes raised in A Man's A Man. Could you say a wee bit more about that?
2: I think I was thinking about Burns, it was was January and, and I was thinking of his great sort of exhortation to humanity you know that brothers be the world hour, you know and the idea that we all link up as a great brotherhood of man and what a wonderful thing that would be (laughs) but it's clearly not happening and it struck me that I would like to write a poem I was thinking of that little boy Alan Curdie who was washed up on a beach um and was Dead. I mean, it's utterly shocking, those images in the newspaper. And I don't know, I, I felt thinking about Burns's words, there was something very ironic about them in that kind of context. And I think that that kind of abandonment of our humanity... When there's an awful lot of isolationism going on in politics at the moment, so so that's kind of where it came from. and i and I used some of Burns's lines from that poem to kind of well, I altered them slightly to give a kind of ironic ring
0: and I think there's something definitely to be said about poetry's power to kind of get in there at moments like like that and to really. Get people to think. Th- I'm thinking of the inauguration as well, and and that young woman,
2: Amanda Gorman, absolutely fantastic. Wasn't it? I mean, she just stole the whole ceremony, uh, and it was it was inspiring. It was kind of what was needed at that moment in a way. This this glorious young woman. I felt she was in the footsteps of Maya Angelou. You know, I mean, it was just fabulous, and it was she was so much writing from her own position as well but reaching out from that to humanity at large I thought it was stunning I want to speak a
0: bit more about your own collection Gerda Quine's other fantastic women that you've shone a poetic light on and exploring these contributions from often overlooked women among them you know great range of you know of women singers politicians queens fish gutters could you say a little bit more about that collection and why you wanted to frame these women I suppose
2: I'd written a couple of poems in my first poetry collection one of them was in the voice of a ship a female ship <laughs> because uh, ships tend to be female and then there was another that I wrote in the voice of St Catherine and people seem to quite like those poems and then I began to think about the idea of writing in a voice of which I hadn't done so much of in that in that first poetry collection and I was up in Shetland filming uh, doing that that series Shetland the detective series and we had a day off because it was it was raining and i wanted to to get out to the isle of island of musa where there's this wonderful broch but I couldn't get a boat. It was the wrong time of season. Nobody would take me out. So I went to the museum instead. And I saw this head of a young woman from Neolithic times, which had been recreated from her skull, which lay beside this reconstructed head. She just looked so contemporary. There was something about her. And she she had a there was a similarity of her kind of bone structure and colouring the hair and the same colour of eyes as myself. And I found myself looking at her very close up and thinking... Thinking, gosh, I feel that there's no time at all between us, even though it's thousands of years, actually. And I started to think about her. And and I'd also been researching into the uh, Owenite women, the the women who were the followers of uh, Robert Owen's social reforming policies. And one of them was a Dundonian, Fanny Wright, who went to America. She was born in 1792. And she went to America. She was a great social reformer an extraordinary dramatic life and very tragic in many ways but she was also an inspiration in terms of her outlook and her wanting women to be able to participate fully in society she was way way pre the suffragettes and I I began to think I wonder if I could write a book that would start with that young Shetland woman from Neolithic times and would include Fanny Wright and then that gradually I was thinking about writing in the voices of, of of women and the voice of an object that might be related to her. And then I just started, the, you know, the book sort of gradually formed in my head, because women have been silenced through the ages. And I felt that, you know, men tend to write the history and, and it tends to be about men. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to just write a book that was celebrating the achievement of women that didn't include men? What would that look like? <laughs>
0: Absolutely, to give them centre stage. And I love the, um, the title Quines. I mean, I love the word Quine anyway. Yeah, maybe for people who don't know the word, could you say a wee bit about it?
2: Well, it means a lass or a, a woman. Any female can be a Quine. And I like it because it has a kind of, you know, a resonance of queen about it, a kind of aristocracy of the spirit, if you like. And all the women in this book, Quines, have great spirit, no matter where they come from and what class they're from, they are aristocrats of the spirit in in my view
0: oh i, I love that that notion i mean and that it is it's a very equalizing word isn't it quine
2: mm-hmm. it is you know.
0: would you mind reading us a poem from quine's
2: i'll i'll read you one of the the shorter ones it's actually in the voice of williamina payton fleming's discovery she was an astronomer born in dundee in 1857 and she died in boston usa in 1911 She received numerous international honours and awards, including the Guadalupe Almendaro Medal from the Astronomical Society of Mexico for her discoveries of new stars. Interestingly, her name was eliminated from Harvard's list of astronomical discoveries, which denied her credit for her discovery of Horsehead Nebula, which is that gaseous mass below Orion's belt that looks like a head of a horse. And, I mean, that has often been the story of women. You know, if you think of Rosalind Franklin, you know, she did all the spade work on the double helix and then Crick and Watson got the Nobel Prize. And in this case, yes, her, her name was for some reason eliminated from uh, on the list at Harvard and a, a, a man's name, an uh, academic who's, who, who, who I forget, fortunately, right now, you know, it's that seems to me to to be an irony. And I thought I would write this poem in the voice of horsehead Nebula yeah, I should say that she was born in Dundee, and uh, she was married to a, a man and she, she she did his accounts for him, and then he left her and he went to Boston. She followed, but they never got together. She got a job in the Professor of astronomy's house at Harvard uh, He had her as a kind of housekeeper kitchen maid, which was very interesting and then you know the rest is history horsehead nebula speaks. There I am, bucking my head below Orion's belt, free rein in that constellation's fiery dust, riding the stellar waves for millennia, unnoticed, till a woman with eyes like burning stars takes one look, has me harnessed, measured, catalogued and tamed. I'm proud to be groomed with such exquisite care by one who can do it all. A maid, she was, at the professor's kitchen sink until he saw her quiet gift for seeing light with a precision that far outstripped his Harvard team of men. And then the men come in. I'm claimed as their discovery and named Grim Reaper, Black Knight of the Chessboard, they say, failing to notice I'm a mare. They make me want to leap from this photographic plate, leave it miraculously blank, and take her with me, my lady of the stars, who found me first, We'd race the heavens together, gallop across light years, stream through Zeta's glittering rays, bareback, all along the hunter's belt from Mintaka to Alnitak.
0: Just makes you want to cheer, that poem. (laughs)
2: Well, those last words are the names, the Arabic names for stars, and I I, I rather like them. I thought they were beautiful.
0: Beautiful, yeah. Thank you. That was lovely. Just to bring us to a close then, Gerda, and and to to, to speaking still of the world, uh, you are going to be part of uh, the San Francisco St. Andrew Society's Burns Night. Um, I wonder if you could let us in on what's on the cards. What's the plan?
2: (laughs) Well, um, what we've done is uh, we've made a little film of me reading. I sent... The organizers some uh, some photographs that might go along with the poems, and that's been fun. And also I've I've sung some burn songs um as well on this little film. So yeah, we've put together my own poetry and burn songs and one of my own songs, and I've really enjoyed the process. It's been it's been lovely. It's it's great to to reach across. Oceans, isn't it?
0: <laughs> mm, oh, absolutely. And on that note, I wonder because we, we, you know, our, our listeners are, for this podcast are all over. So I wonder if we could tempt you to finish on a on a little piece of Burns of your choice.
2: Well, yes, um, the little piece of Burns of my choice isn't such a little poem, so I won't read the whole thing. It's one of his big poems, and I absolutely love it. It's called "The Vision," and when Burns wrote it, he he must have been at a very low point. He describes himself in the poem, and it's after a hard day's work. He writes, There, lanely, by the ingle cheek, I sat and eyed the spewing reek that filled with host-provoking smeak the old clay biggin, and heard the restless ratten squeak about the riggin, all in this motty, misty clime I backward mused on wasted time How I had spent my youthful prime And done naething but stringin blethers up in rhyme For fools to sing. Had I to gid advice but hark it a by this he led a market, or strutted in a bank and clarket my cash account, while here, half mad, half fed, half sarket, is all the amount. I started muttering blockhead coof, and heaved on high my walket loof, to swear by all yon starry roof, or some rash eighth that I henceforth would be rhyme-proof till my last breath. <laughs> and then at that moment, as he's swearing to give up writing altogether, there's a, a, a little click of the sneck at the door, and in comes this woman. She's wearing this extraordinary cloak. It's, it's vast. It's, it's like a shining landscape. And in fact, it is the whole of Scotland that she's wearing. And it's laid out before him. And then she speaks to him and she encourages him to continue writing. And it's, I, I find it very moving. She speaks in English, interestingly enough, but when he's speaking about himself, he writes in Scots. So it's a bilingual poem and it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And to me very moving because I can understand that as a a writer myself as an artist and gosh particularly during this pandemic when the arts as as so many areas of work have been absolutely clobbered I can understand that sense of you know what am I doing with my life despair and yet he's uplifted by this muse who comes to him and it's wonderful it's one of my very favorite poems the vision
0: We all need a bit of encouragement in these January days, this year of all years, and so many thanks to Gerda for her uplifting words and insights into the world of poetry and song. Quine's Poems in Tribute to Women of Scotland is available to buy from your favourite independent bookshop. Well, thank you for joining us for this very first podcast of the new year. We'll be back again soon. But in the meantime, don't miss our regular Wigtown Wednesday events featuring the likes of Jenny Fagan, Gavin Francis and Catherine May. You can find out more on our social media channels or regular newsletter or from the website wigtownbookfestival.com. That's all for now. Take good care of yourselves. Goodbye.